I want to jump into some teaching this morning. We're, we're deep, deep, deep into this teaching series. This is one of the longest series I've ever done, and um, I'm not sure how and where it's going to end, but we've been in this series for several uh, weeks and actually months now uh, that we're calling Emotionally Healthy. This series is about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of, of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons this is important, one of the reasons that we believe we should be talking about this and learning about this is because Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. So we started this series back in March asking this question, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? So far, just to kind of recap, we've looked at the example of Jesus' emotional health, and we talked about his spiritual practices, the importance of silence and solitude and prayer. Uh, we talked about family of origin and breaking the power of the past. We talked about identity and calling, and part of that is accepting the gift of, lim of our own God-given limitations. We talked about pace of life and hurry sickness. Uh, we talked about the tyranny of living for the approval of others. We talked about embracing grief and loss. We talked about forgiveness and reconciliation. A few weeks ago, we talked about anger. And then last week, we talked about our narrative scripts, the messages that inform what we believe and the way that we behave. And we looked at a passage in 2 Corinthians 10 that's familiar to a lot of you where the Apostle Paul said that we are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And if the narrative scripts of our lives are the messages that inform the way, the, the way that we believe and the way that we behave, then what informs our narrative scripts? So we identified three things. We talked about events, emotions, and our interpretation of events and emotions. And we said that the power of the narrative script that we're living into is that it will own us until we own it. And I really appreciate your feedback from last Sunday. It's been great. I know it was kind of thematic and a bit abstract, and uh, it was a little warm in here. And uh, so I really appreciate the effort you made to kind of hang with that last Sunday and to track with me. Because some of these concepts around emotional health are abstract and, and heady and intangible, and sometimes it's a challenge to find the words, to craft the, a presentation in such a way that there's something that we can latch on to. And so sometimes I know that you're having to stretch a little bit and, and reach a little because and I don't think everything has to be on the bottom shelf because I think you're smart people, you can handle that. So again, thank you uh, for your feedback and your encouragement on this process. And after last week, that was great. I appreciate all the input. I've been praying for you this week as you've explored some of the things that we talked about. If you've missed any of the teachings, just a little uh, self-promotion and uh, advertising here, just I uh, want to encourage you to go back and listen to anything that maybe you've missed. You can visit the media player on our website. Go to faithcommunityfellowship.com, go to under the tab that says messages, and uh, you can find uh, all of our messages from the last like six years right there. And if you actually go into the uh, series tab and search emotionally healthy, you'll find all these messages right there. And something you might want to uh, take advantage of is uh, all of these except for all these messages except for one, and I'm going to get this one done this week, have 
uh, an attachment, uh, a PDF with discussion questions that you can use either in a, in a discipleship kind of mentoring kind of setting, uh, in a small group, or in your own personal time with God. So check that resource out too. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get podcasts as well. Uh, the reason I talk about that and keep reminding you to, to go back to that because I just don't want there to be any gaps. Um, my prayer is that for all of us in this series that uh, whether we're talking about individuals or couples or families or us as a church, that God would bring us to a place of emotional health and emotional maturity as followers of Jesus. That's our prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit into this place. Give us clarity of thought. Free our hearts and minds from distractions. May we hear and respond to your voice this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So before Gandhi, before uh, Dr. King, before Nelson Mandela, there was Jesus of Nazareth over two millennia ago. And he said some crazy things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Those who live by the sword will, buy, will die by the sword. Sounds like the words of a pacifist. But I think to classify Jesus as a pacifist is a bit, uh, well, no, as at best misleading. Uh, I believe he was a warrior, as all of the Old Testament prophecies predicted he would be. We tend to think that Jesus was manifested in one way when he was here, and he'll be warrior when he returns. He was, when he came 2,000 years ago, he was here as a warrior. And here's what I mean by that. The way that he defeated the enemy which in Jesus' mind was not the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Pharisees on the right and the Sadducees on the left. The enemy in his mind was the trifecta that we call the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the way that he defeated this trifold enemy was not with a sword or a spear or an army who had his back, but with a cross. So it should come as no surprise that he called his disciples, his followers, to follow his example. Let's look at a teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, uh, let's turn there real quick. If you're using the Bible app, you're probably already there. Uh, we'll put on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, or the Torah, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter took him aside, and he's going to give him a little talking to, right? It's Peter's way. And he's like, he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This is the gut reaction in all of us to the idea of the cross. Verse 23. Jesus turned and said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. At the top of the list of things you don't want Jesus to say to you, <laughs> right? Get behind me, Satan. And yet in this somber moment, I think it's a brilliant insight into the way that Satan gets into our lives. It's through our refusal to go to the cross. Jesus goes on, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. At the center of the way of Jesus is the symbol of the cross. 
And over the years, we've turned it into all kinds of things. We've turned it into an architectural feature on a building. We've turned it into poetic language in our songs. We've turned it into a piece of jewelry. D did you know that the search criteria cross clip art is Googled over 28,000 times a month? And we've reduced it to that. But the cross is an ancient, brutal, grotesque symbol of death. And the call of Jesus to deny ourselves and take up our cross is essentially a call to come and die. In the world that we call home in 21st century, a global community, this sounds crazy, right? Uh, and the barrage of cultural messaging that that comes at us that we receive constantly says just the exact opposite. Everything is about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. At the turn of the 21st century, in, in around, around 2002, the BBC produced a documentary, maybe you've seen it, on about the 20th century and specifically the rise of the advertising industry and marketing and consumerism. And it, called, it was called The Century of the Self. And I've watched a bunch of it and it's, it's pretty telling. It seems like the closest thing we have to self-denial in our culture is health and fitness, right? Where like you deny yourself because you, you know you want that donut, you want that burrito, you want that whatever, or maybe to sleep or watch TV when you know that the gym is right down the road or the treadmill is under just a, like all your winter clothes down in the basement. But even in health and fitness, think about this, it's still a mechanism most of the time for further self-fulfillment because we want to look good and we want to feel good. Or maybe somewhere in your past you sacrificed to put yourself through school or through grad school or some kind of training or maybe it was the military or maybe you just put in crazy hours and you skipped lots of things that might bring you pleasure in the moment and you did that for a while. But when you think about it still, uh, it was to arrive at your end goal of, you know, whatever, whether it was the corner office or some financial goal or so you could buy a certain kind of house or drive a certain kind of car or take certain kinds of vacations or whatever. Most of us can't fathom a vision of the good life that doesn't involve getting what we want because it's the American dream. That's what, it's, that's what it's been reduced to. Great quote from Robert Roberts, who was, uh, which I think is a very cool name. Robert Roberts, who was a professor of philosophy at Baylor University, he says, uh, we've been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct, which means too important or too um, special to be challenged or to be criticized. We've been led to believe that the self is, is sacrosanct. Self is the new God. Just as in earlier times it was thought fitting to never deny God, now it seems never fitting and right to deny yourself. So we hear these messages all the time, all over the place, even really, even in the deep philosophical insights of Facebook memes. We see deep, we see this, right? You know what I'm talking about. Be true to yourself, whatever that means. Follow your heart, because how could that, that couldn't possibly go wrong. Do what makes you happy. Oh, by all means. Uh, don't let anybody tell you what to do. This is the orthodoxy of our world. Take up your cross, deny yourself, that's crazy. It's like heresy. And in the church, we often mess this up because desire is the engine of our lives and it's revved up to full power. And so if, the, if in the world people often idealize desire and worship at its altar, often in the church, we make the opposite mistake and we demonize it. 
So what exactly does Jesus mean by deny yourself and take up your cross? Um, I would argue that he means deny your self. I've separated the words on the screen because there's a different meaning there. It's not like, oh, deny yourself, whatever, you know. Deny yourself, here's what I mean. You, as in the soul that God created you as, you are an object of Jesus' love and Jesus' delight. Through Jesus' love, you have been adopted into the family of your loving Heavenly Father. God is the creator. God, your father, like any good father, wants what is best for you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to flourish. Maybe the first time you've ever heard this in church. But when Jesus says, deny yourself, I think he's talking about something that falls under the rubric that followers of Jesus have been using since the first century. And Jesus never actually said these words, but his earliest followers did, including the apostles like Peter and, and John and Paul. They contributed this idea that there are three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They use this language all the time to describe what what we all feel, the spiritual dynamic that's just part of the human experience. So when Jesus says yourself, I think self sits right in the middle of this. You could say that it's our flesh, but it's more than that. It's the access point where deceptive ideas are on one side. We talked about that last week, the devil's go-to strategy, the thought processes and the behaviors that are normalized by whatever is around the world that we live in. Um, and then the other is we just call the world. And what Jesus is calling us to put to death and the nail to a cross is not like you as a soul or you as a person. He's talking about the deceptive ideas that play in our head, the desires that dominate our heart, the behavior that's normalized in the world that we live in. Put another way, we're to die to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I'm getting this definition of self from the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament we're going to come right back to Matthew 16. So if you're using a paper Bible, stick something in there. If you're using the Bible app, just jump over with me. Turn real quick to Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes this in his letter to the church in Galatia. And, and like I just like to remind you, uh, Paul was a real person writing to real people who lived in a real city. And Galatia is in modern, the modern day central provinces of Turkey. So it's a real place. Paul says this in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So clearly Paul is still alive and breathing oxygen, okay? So what exactly does he mean when he says, I've died with Jesus on the cross? He explains a little bit further a couple chapters later in, in Galatians 5 and verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. So it's like, I'm not the only one who's died with Christ. All of those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, pay close attention, the flesh with its passion and desires. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What he's saying is that the self that we are to crucify is the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, the world that we live in, I think, has one category for desire. And it's our authentic self, which is what we mean when we say things like be true to yourself or do what makes you happy. But Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, they have two categories, both of which are authentic to you and me. We all have what we would call 
flesh, a flesh, okay? It, it can be defined as the disordered desires, those are animal, our, our primal animalistic desires that are bent towards self-gratification. That's the flesh. And we have a spirit or a will that is bent in the opposite direction. It's bent toward love. And those two aspects of the desire of our heart are at war. One writer called it a war of loves. And that's exactly what it is. It's a war between our disordered desires of the flesh and our deeper desires of the spirit that are in us to love God, to be loved by God, to be a channel for God's love to flow to others. Another example, uh, if you're in Galatians, just go a couple pages over to Colossians chapter 3, another letter by Paul. Look at verse 1. He says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Verse 3. For you died, sound familiar? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here are a few examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. It's not an exhaustive list, just some examples. Oh, did you notice there's a chronological, I just, just kind of cool, it's an aside really, but there's a chronological dimension to our self-denial here. Because in verse 3, you died, that's past tense. And later in verse 3, your life is now hidden in Christ with God, that's present tense. In verse 4, you will appear with him in glory, that's future tense. So there's an old self that you and I are to say no to, nailed to the cross, crucify. There's a present self that is with Christ, and there's a future self that will one day live in God's presence, and Paul calls that glory. So I think that's kind of cool. Back to Matthew chapter 16. This is what Jesus means by deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. This, this, this call, by the way, is at the core of discipleship. You consider yourself a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. This is, this is the essence. And I've been a follower of Jesus for over 40 years, and I still feel like a beginner on this one. I'm just starting to get what the whole thing is about, that self-denial is at the center of everything. And what if everything about discipleship and everything about following Jesus, about becoming more like Jesus, in the end comes down to this one key idea. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Oh, did you know that this is Jesus' most repeated teaching? It's in all four Gospels, which is pretty unusual. And it actually appears seven times in total in the four Gospels. But notice the word must. He says, you want to be my disciple? You must. You must do this. This is what you have to do. This is how you do it. You take up your cross, and in other places where he's teaching on this, he says, you take up your cross daily, and you follow me. Come to this place where you say, God, I'm yours. If this sounds like complete surrender, if this sounds like a tough sell, you're thinking, why in the world would I do this, Jesus? I, just, I, I love Jesus because he's brilliant, and he's a really good teacher, and he anticipates our questions before we ask them, right? Uh, but, you know, and so this is good, Jesus. I, get, I, I, I know in other places you've taught some really cool stuff, and I, I've, pro- I've proven it out that it actually works, but this, come on. Verse uh, 25, next line. Here's the reason behind it, the motivation. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He'll reward each person according to what they've done. One of my favorite um, things about Jesus' teaching style is how often His teachings do not end with a command. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they do not. 
usually they just end with a statement about reality, about how life actually works, about a better way to be human. He says, whoever wants to save their life must, will lose it, and whoever loses their life from me will find it. So you have to read this not as a command, not as a, you know, you really should do this. You have to read it as a statement about reality. From Jesus' perspective, you have two options. Deny Jesus, follow yourself, or deny yourself and follow Jesus. The results are losing your life or saving your life. So let's just parse this out for the next few minutes um, about how this actually works because this is, again, kind of a lofty concept. Let's talk about what it looks like in our living it out. Um, And this, I think, is part of the teaching that relates to what we've been talking about um, as far as it relates to emotional health. So let's let's start here. If we deny Jesus and follow ourself, Put another way, when we put our desires the ultimate in our life, it is the king on the throne of our heart. We make getting what we want the authority, you know, in, in our life, and that's the motivation for all that we do. You know, if and when we opt for that path, um, a handful of things uh, will happen in our soul. And uh, so I want to talk about that. First of all, if we deny ourselves, if we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, number one, we will be unsatisfied. I know you're thinking that's not the word. Actually, I didn't think so either until I really got digging into this because you think the word's dissatisfied, don't you? Because I did. But both words are okay. They have slightly different meanings. Desire is by nature infinite. It cannot be satisfied. The nature of the human soul as it was created by God and for God and for eternity itself. So, so nothing less than life with God our Father and Creator forever will satisfy the soul. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. What that means is that nothing other than our continual connection to life with God will ever satisfy us. No matter what it is that we want, whether it's good or evil or somewhere in between, we'll never be able to get enough of that. We'll never come to the spot where we're like, okay, I have enough of whatever it is that we thought we wanted. Um, to me, the, the most blatant uh, statement about this was made by John uh, D. Rockefeller, who you've probably heard of him, who was, he was one of our neighbors down the road there, but he was, one of, he was the richest man in modern history. Do you know that? He could buy and sell Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg at the same time. It's adjust, adjusted for inflation, his net worth was $415 billion. Someone asked him one time, how much money is enough? Do you remember, do you know his response? just a little bit more. Can you imagine? We're talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the devil uses discontentment and dissatisfaction to entrap people in a a lifetime game of carrot and stick. Because, listen, if advertisers are smart enough to figure this out, you can bet that the spiritual powers and principalities are, are working it too. So on the flip side... If we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we will be satisfied, right? Ironically, when you no longer need to get what you want to become happy, all that is good in your life becomes a gift, not a right, which in turn dramatically increases your capacity to enjoy the life that you have in the present and to be happy in that. Happiness is really a synonym for contentment when ordinary life is enough. And if you're like, well, my life is anything but ordinary, it'd be nice to be ordinary. 
we get to this place not by enthroning desire, but by dethroning desire and finding our satisfaction, not in getting what we want, but in continual connection to Jesus. So secondly, if we deny Jesus and follow ourself, we end up disintegrated. And uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, do you ever have those moments? I don't know, maybe that happen when you're... Um, I don't know, watching the news on TV, if any of you still do that, not many people do, or you're getting it online or wherever you get your news. It doesn't really matter where you get your news, but you ever have those moments where it just feels like the world has gone mad? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it just, wherever, everywhere you look, it looks like it's spinning out of control. In a sense, just let me say this, in a sense, it's overblown and slightly exaggerated. In another sense, it's spot on. Because it kind of has. It's what happens when an entire society that's estranged from God and the political and the personal chaos that we are living through is what happens when the uncrucified self becomes the driver for our souls individually and collectively. And people get angry and anxious and depressed and what it, it's just exactly what happens when people don't get what they want. On the flip side... When we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we end up reintegrated. And I, and I kind of wish I had more time to talk about that. And, and just like every other message in this series, uh, th- these few minutes on Sunday are not meant to be an exhaustive you know, dissertation on what we're talking about on this particular topic of the day. It's not a comprehensive study on the topic. Uh, we're just scratching the surface, hopefully whetting your appetite so you'll go have some of the conversations you need to have, do some more study, do some reading, maybe schedule some time with a counselor. But long story short, Here's what I mean when I, when I say we end up reintegrated. In biblical theology, your soul is the integration of your whole person. So at the popular level, people think that your soul is like the invisible, immortal part of you. That's actually not biblical theology. Biblical theology, the soul is the whole you. The whole you, where you are in connection to the Spirit of God, visible, invisible, material, immaterial, all of you together, integrated into a whole, is your soul. And you and I were created to live in harmony at the soul level. But when our self is on the throne, it's at the center rather than God, we are disintegrated or we're disconnected. And we start to come apart. And we feel conflicted and torn and racked by tension, which is how a lot of people feel. It's just how a lot of people do life. And not just people kind of out there, but people sitting right here in this room. And the solution is to reintegrate. We tend to lean into solutions that uh, all they can do is manage symptoms and not deal with the root cause. And for Jesus, the root problem of all human behavior, the root problem of the human condition underneath it all is that the human soul becomes disintegrated, unconnected from our creator. And in that state, we become open in mind to the ideas of the devil and run by our flesh, not by God's spirit. So the solution is reintegration. And as long as we attempt to, as long as we attempt to gain peace in our inner world by rearranging the circumstances of our outer world, we are doomed to an unpeaceful life. And I think that one, I'm just going to back up because I didn't put that on the screen. I just want to back up and repeat that. As long as we attempt to gain peace in our inner world by rearranging the circumstances in our outer world, 
we are doomed to an unpeaceful life. It's just like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You just, it's just, it just doesn't work out. One of the things you start to learn as you approach midlife is, uh, and I'm near getting there, is whatever the solution is, it's not that. <laughs> You've been there. You're like, oh, yes, I know. Yeah, I'm finding this out. Your happiness can't be dependent on a trouble-free life. Because at best, you're going to have fleeting moments of it, right? My point is that when you, you deny yourself and you reintegrate your soul with God at the center, even when your outer world is a mess, even when your children are in trouble, even when your marriage isn't exactly what you want it to be, even when your sexuality is a struggle, even when your career, when you're filling the blank, whatever it is, you have peace. Third, if we deny Jesus and follow ourself, we end up run by desire. Desire in and of itself is not bad um, unless, you, unless you lean into Buddhism's take on it, and we could talk about that over coffee sometime. But I would argue it's one of the main things that gets us out of bed in the morning. Desire is a great motivator, a, a terrible master, but a great motivator. When you have to do what you want to do, that's the problem. Dallas Willard said it this way. He says, to live with uncrucified affections and desires is simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position in our lives. Whatever we want becomes the most important thing. This is what happens when we're living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they are all that we have. We, we look to them as if they're everything in our lives and we start to believe that it's everything in our lives. And we think of our worth and our image and my appearance and thinking of my, my power to sustain myself. And so we become people who are run by our own desires. And it's not all bad, okay? But we all know that our desires are chaotic and contradictory and deceitful and sometimes lead us to uh, life and sometimes lead us to the edge of a cliff. <laughs> so uh, if we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, instead we end up motivated by love. That's the flip side. Remember, remember Paul's teaching on the flesh that we read in, in Galatians 5? Remember the flesh is the antithesis of love. All the flesh wants and all the disordered parts of our heart want is self-gratification. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it and probably how we want to do it, so don't let anybody tell me different. And what the Holy Spirit in us wants to do is love is to will the good of another ahead of our own. So for the follower of Jesus, this lifelong journey is to become the kind of person for whom every action is motivated by love. Pay attention, because sometimes we do loving things for selfish reasons. Am I right? If you want to know what your motivation is, just see what happens when people don't behave the way that you intended for them to behave and see what happens inside you. The lifelong journey is to become the kind of person for whom every act is love, is motivated by love, to become a channel for the love of the Heavenly Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to flow through us to the world that we live in. The older I get and the longer and more intentionally that I follow Jesus, the more I realize that to love is to deny my flesh and to take up my cross. 
to say yes to that deep undercurrent of driving, motivating love. Finally, if we deny Jesus and follow ourself, we end up in slavery to want. I call it slavery because we have to do what we want to do, even if it's not good for us or for others. It's slavery because as long as our happiness, or in Jesus' language, our, as long as our soul or our life is dependent on getting what we want, we will rarely be happy because our happiness is locked up in the prison of want and can't escape to the surface of our heart. On the flip side, when we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus, we end up free from the domination of want, liberated from dependence on getting what you want in order to be happy. In order to get what we want, we, we tend to manipulate people, yeah? When I think about it, the people I know who are, the, who are genuinely the most happy, most at peace, most grateful, who deeply enjoy their life, who are loving and kind and sacrificial, who just seem to live free of the, you know, whatever, the rat race of consumption and anger and anxiety and all that. They're also the people I know who have most died to self. But there's a deep happiness, Paul calls it contentment, that comes on the person who has died to self, not because they've detached from all their desire, but because they've put their desires in the proper place and God has become ultimate. They've made God their deepest desire. And in doing so, they are set free from the domination and the enslavement of want. So let me just recap real quick. If we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, we end up unsatisfied, disintegrated, run by desire, and enslaved to want. This is what Jesus means when he says you will lose your soul. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which it was written in uh, 1937 when the rise of the Nazi Empire regime was, was underway in Germany. That was the backdrop for his writing and his theology of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. He coined the phrase cheap grace. He said it's misleading to talk about, you know, grace is free. That it will cost you to follow Jesus. But then others who came along after him and who, even those who admired him and looked to his writings... They've come back since then and said, yes, there is a cost. There is a cost of discipleship. There is also a cost of non-discipleship. It's like you have to run a cost-benefit analysis on this. Are you willing to trade happiness for that quick pleasure? Are you willing to trade contentment for instant gratification? Are you willing to trade the cumulative compound interest of blessing accrued over years of faithfulness just for the easy out of quitting when it's hard? Are you willing to trade the world, Jesus says, for your soul? Because on the flip side, if we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we run counter to pretty much all the messaging that we hear. We end up satisfied, reintegrated, motivated by love, free from the domination of want because we have connection, intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Hey, and everything else is bonus. This is what Jesus means when he says, you will save your soul. And for Jesus, it all starts with the cross. 
You want to follow me? You want to apprentice under me? You want to experience life in the kingdom? Wonderful. Welcome, everybody. Glad you're all here. Crosses are right over there. There's one there with your name on it. Just grab that. We're all good to go. Grab your cross. I'm going that way. We've got to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And for Jesus, entry into this kingdom life is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your social status or your income or your education or your IQ or your religious pedigree. It's not even based on your character. It's based on a very simple question. Are you willing to take up your cross? This is step one on the path to life in the kingdom of God. And this is often what we miss. We think of this uh, line, Paul's declaration in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and the stunning word there is with. I've been crucified with Christ. We err if we think that Jesus was crucified just so that we don't have to be. He did not die just so that we don't have to die. He died as well to show us how to die to ourselves. And put another way, and this might sound unorthodox to you, it's not, trust me, it's straight up Paul, Galatians 2. The cross isn't just something Jesus did for us, it is, but it's also something we do with him. It's not just a theology of atonement, it is, but it's a practice. It's not just an event from the past in the life of Jesus, it is, and we give special place to it, but it's also a way of life in the present for me and for you. So how do we address the world, the flesh, and the devil? How do we battle with these forces? We come and we die. We have no practice for this teaching, uh, but here's something I want to give you. In your time with God, whenever and however you do that, whether it's in the morning before you start your day or if it's in the evening when you have some quiet at the end of your day or somewhere in between, however you do your time with God, I just want to encourage you in that quiet space, in your solitude this week, take a moment and just visualize Jesus on the cross. And then visualize yourself on that cross with him. Picture yourself taking your old disordered self, that desire that drives you, taking that and nailing that to the cross. But don't stop there. Because remember, the, the, the cross is half of a two-part narrative. The other half is resurrection. So visualize yourself walking out of the grave, coming back into new life. St. Ignatius, uh, who founded the Jesuit order, his, one of, probably his most famous quote, he said, Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. You have to trust in the love of your heavenly Father. What he wants for you is your deepest happiness. The answer to that ache that we all have, every human being, follower of Jesus or not. And it's through the cross and out the other side into resurrection and life in the kingdom of God in the messy and beautiful here and now. That's his call. Listen to the words of the song.
down on my knees again, surrendering, surrendering. Find me here, Lord, as you draw me near, desperate for you. Desperate for you, I surrender. Trench my soul as mercy. Jesus, please. 